0: We're kicking off a brand new series today, a series that I'm incredibly excited about, a series that I'm a little nervous of because the content, the ideas that we're gonna be discussing are so incredibly important and yet so sort of sometimes hard to grasp. And as you're gonna see, this kinda goes back and forth between the realities of these ideas. And so we're gonna take some time over the next few weeks to talk about it. We're calling the series Two Rooms. And like I said, they're important ideas, but, but let me start off by saying this as we kick, um, kick this off. I believe, and I don't know what your experience of Christianity has been, but I believe that Christianity is one of the most incredible, one of the most beautiful, one of the most life-changing things in our world. I really believe that. I, I, I think it explains me and life And how we navigate this life with all the complexities better than anything else I've ever come across. It explains how I navigate life with my own uh, desire for good, my own attempts at good, my own desire for more, as well as my own wrestle and struggle with my own imperfection and my own uh, self-centeredness and my own pride. Christianity explains it so well, and it gives an answer that is life-changing. It has changed me so much, and I love it. It's the most beautiful, most powerful thing that I've ever encountered. I love it. But I believe while that is what it was meant to be, and that is what Christianity, as Jesus presented it, what it was supposed to be, the reality is that in our world, (laughs) Sometimes Christianity is just such a mess. And not just in our world. Sometimes it's just such a mess in our churches. And sometimes even in our own hearts, Christianity is a bit of a mess. It should have been something that brings so much grace and peace and joy and love and acceptance and freedom. And yet for so many people in our world, and maybe this is true for you, for so many people it has been a source of some of the most painful experiences. It's been a source that's created judges and hypocrites sometimes. It's been something that has caused people to feel shame and guilt to the point where they're not even sure if God loves them or accepts them. Christianity has done that. Christianity has also, even if you think about our history, created tyrants and wars And so Christianity, while it was meant to be this beautiful, amazing, loving, powerful, awesome thing that truly helps, truly gives hope, truly, and and I've experienced that, I've seen all the mess, I've spoken to people, I've experienced some of it. While it's supposed to be this beautiful thing, and even in all that stuff I've experienced and seen, I've still seen the beauty and experience, and I'm so grateful, but I understand that even that's why it's me- what it was meant to be. For some people, it's still this big mess. I actually got an email from somebody a little while ago that expresses some of this conundrum, some of this, it's supposed to be this, but this is what I've experienced, and this this email expresses so clearly and so in such a moving way what we're trying to talk about, and it sort of sets up where we're going that I wanna read a a significant part of this email that was sent to me, a good part. So so bear with me as I read it. I think it's really important what this person says. He says this, and it was a random email that I got in my inbox a while ago. Hey there, Justin. You'll have to forgive me for the random nature of this email and for the length. I don't believe we actually know each other. I noticed that you're a pastor at a church in Chattanooga, and for this reason, I determined that you might be a like-minded individual who might be game for some random philosophical, theological, and frankly, tough conversations. A little about me. I was raised very religious. Growing up, there was no debate. God existed. The flavor of Christianity that I was primarily exposed to was a certain denomination that he names. Thankfully, I was young enough that it didn't mess me up in a way that it has so many others. Fair warning, I curse like a sailor. I hope that you can get past that. For the sake of dialogue, I ain't changing. Uh, just so that you know, I've edited out some of the words <laughs> so that I can read it this morning. Just And I, I've already edited out some of the words. Um, but listen to what he says. As a teenager, I was very active in my church. You name it, I was part of it. Christmas plays, there I was. Youth group, you bet, volunteering at homeless shelters, guilty, mission trips, every time. There were red flags that should have been a warning to me throughout my teenage years, but I was young and going through the motions, and I didn't realize at the time where it would lead me. Spoiler, I'm an atheist now. And he goes on to share some of the horror stories of hypocritical and unloving actions that he bumped into over and over and over again in his church experience. One situation that he shares is that how he went on a mission trip with an entire team to uh, Eastern Europe somewhere in the dead of winter, and they had a whole truckload of clothes and shoes to give to people in need. And when they came across a certain group of people in this, you know, group, you know, people in need, this certain group of people, he saw that these kids and people didn't have shoes in the dead of winter. And he said, now's the time. Let's give them the stuff. And he attempted to do that. And one of the leaders on this trip said, nope. We're not gonna do that, not to those people, because they won't take care of it, so we're not gonna give it to them. Here's his commentary on what happened. I will never forget that moment, and I will never forgive the woman who made that evil call. The notions that the poor were somehow responsible for their own condition and couldn't and shouldn't be helped had bled into the church and bled into this mission trip. He shares a few more stories, and then he says, <laughs> That ruined missions for me. (laughs) However, I digress. Not very long after that, I went to college. I intentionally attended a public university in a party city. Admittedly, I was ready to rebel. I won't regale you with every tale from my college days, but I will say that I had a lot of fun that would make most church folk blush and would lead to unforgivable judgment. This is also the period during which I entertained the possibility that I might be an atheist. At this point, I was still going to church every single Sunday. And listen listen to how he describes his experience in church as he's wrestling with faith, as he's wrestling with all this stuff. I was still going to church every single Sunday, but it had become something different at that point. Yes, I went to church, but I had also become a project. My church friends were constantly trying to fix me. They were always so bothered and concerned and determined to change the ways in which I lived that differed from their view of how good Christians should live. Every pastor in my life wanted to regularly counsel with me. He has these words, powerful words. I was never trying hard enough or doing good enough. I was never measuring up to their standards. I wasn't good enough for them. I began to question everything. I moved back to Chattanooga, reconnected with a friend group from high school and moved on. I quit church. I quit Christianity. Most of my new friends were atheists. I embraced my atheism and my 20s went by in a whirlwind. Despite landing in atheism, listen to this. Despite landing in atheism, religion fascinated me I explored every religion and denomination I could get my hands on. I studied in mosques, in synagogues, in temples. I've read the entire Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Bible, the Buddhist scriptures, the Book of Mormon. There is, isn't much I haven't studied. And then listen to what he says next. However, rereading the Bible as a 31-year-old atheist who has explored a few other perspectives, wow he says, I got a completely different message. I dare say a completely different theological perspective than the what the vast majority of Christianity teaches. (laughs) I read all that because I think he's right. I think there are two ways of experiencing Christianity. Two primary ways, probably more, but but two primary ways of experiencing Christianity, of understanding it, of it being presented to you in one of two ways, two rooms, if you will, that we can find ourselves being invited into or coerced or forced to live by two rooms that if you've connected with Christianity in any way um, in your life, you've probably been exposed to, experienced, called to, forced to live from or live in one of these two rooms or one of these two ways. I think there are two ways that Christianity is portrayed in our world and two ways that we, you and I, experience Christianity. Powerful letter. Paul, um, one of the guys who wrote uh, much of the New Testament, was a guy who also experienced these two rooms. And when he met Jesus, he experienced what true Christianity should really look like and can be and is. And he wrote a letter to a group of Christians who were struggling with this idea of this Christianity being one thing and another thing. And what is it? Because Paul had been there and expressed this beauty of Christianity and now they were struggling with it so he wrote a letter that we know as the letter of Galatians because it was this group of people who lived in the Roman province of Galatia and in this letter he expresses the this, this struggle that has been around in Christianity from the very beginning. So Galatians chapter one verse six I want to show you how Paul sort of talks and introduces this, this tension of these two ways. This is what he says, Galatians one verse six. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And he says that there is a real version of Christianity that is defined by the grace of Christ. But then there's this different gospel, this different room, this different way, which he says in verse seven, which really is no gospel at all evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So he says there's these two ways, potentially two rooms, if you will, that people experience and are called into and live from. Now, the reason he wrote this letter is because, like I said, he had traveled there in the past to Galatia, and he'd met these people, and he shared with them this good news, this, this amazing news of what Jesus had done, and what he shared with these people in Galatia was that God loved them, that God was crazy about them, <laughs> he loved them so much, and he shared that they had never done anything to deserve it. I mean, they'd never thought of God in this way. And God loved them, even though they could never do anything to deserve it, or couldn't, even if they tried, couldn't do something. And yet God loved them so much that Jesus died for them. So that He could make a way for, for, for them to, the illustration He uses, to be adopted into God's family. And He taught them that that's the reality. That even though, and if you think about it, how much work does an adoptive child do? to earn the, the, the love of an adoptive parent, nothing. The reason an adoptive parent, I mean, they're the one who spend the thousands of dollars in preparation and traveling and all this stuff. They're the one who seek, the little adopted child does nothing to deserve. That love. And Paul's telling them, guys, that's what it's like. He uses that illustration in this letter. He says, God loves you so much. He's so crazy about you that he's done all this, all this to adopt you into his family. And there's nothing you could do to be adopted. God has done it all. That's what Paul tells these guys. (laughs) And obviously the Galatians were like, really? That's awesome. That God would do that and that he's adopting us, that we're part of his family, that he's accepted us and their lives were changed. They were so eager to accept us and their lives were changed. It's amazing. And they discovered this beautiful room in Christianity that they could live in and live from. And then something horrible happened. After Paul left and kept traveling and telling other people, another group of people came in who were these People, they were false Christian teachers. They were known as the Judaizers. And they came in, they had this Jewish background, and they were like, wait, 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 that's not how it works. And they came in and they said that they claimed, they claimed to know more about Christianity, to know how it really works. And he went, they went to these Galatians and said, Paul told you what? No, 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 that's not how it works. Yeah, sure, God wants to adopt you, but you have to earn it. You have to do enough. To be good enough to earn what God says, you've got to put a bunch of effort to prove that you're good enough to be adopted. That's what they started saying. And these Galatians were like going, oh, uh, we didn't know that. What do we have to do? And the Galatians, the Judaizers told these Galatians the same thing that these church people told my email friend. That he wasn't good enough to live up to the standard of their kind of liking. That he wasn't measuring up. For them to be accepted by God, they needed to be good enough for God. And that's the message. And they created this other room. They started in this one room. They couldn't do anything. They didn't do anything. And God accepted them and loved them. And then they came and said, no, 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 no. If you really wanna be a good Christian, if you really wanna please God, then you better come and do your best and work really hard to please God because otherwise you, I mean, He's adopted you. You better prove every day that you deserve to be adopted. And so they didn't just tell them that in order to become a Christian, you've got to be good enough. They told them that once you are a Christian, I mean, he's done so much for you. The least you can do is try to be good and try to earn and try to show and try to prove that you're a worthy adopted child. You're a worthy child of God. Come on. You can't. You know, if, if you can't perform, you can't be adopted. If you can't perform, you can't stay, is what they told them. And so, as Christians, they told them, you better work really hard to please God. Well, this thing's not gonna work. You see, it was almost like these Galatians, as they were there and these Judaizers came in, what the Judaizers did is they, they kind of brought the scale, this, this justice scale, this judgment scale, and kind of slammed it right in the middle of their room and said, this is how it works. That yeah, God, yes, he loves you, he does very much, and that's great, and he saved you, and Jesus died for you, but, but here's the reality. You need to do enough to balance the scales Yeah, He's done so much for you, you better do some to, to kind of balance that. And you better, you better come in and, and make sure that, that your, your good, your effort, show the effort to kind of make sure that you balance the scales and make sure that it's working right. You better do enough. And they brought the scale in to show them that your effort is important in this thing. Yes, it's not just what God did, but it's what you have done. And if you don't, then you won't be acceptable. You won't be accepted, and you probably won't please God. And you wanna please God, don't you? Come on. So you better do enough to show that you can please God. Let me ask you something. Have you ever experienced faith like that? Like a scale? Have you ever experienced being taught that that's the way it needs to happen? Have you ever felt that, where your acceptance to God was dependent on the scale and what you put on the scale and what you took off the scale and there's certain things in your life that you, oh my gosh, really, are you still doing that? You better take that off. God's not pleased with you. And that your ability to please God was dependent on the scale. And maybe it's as clear as that email friend of mine where he said people were constantly trying to fix him Constantly saying that he's not good enough, that he wasn't trying hard enough to put the right things in place and stop the wrong things, that he was never measuring up to their standards. Those are his words, that he was never good enough. What language is that? That's scale language. That's the Christianity that was presented to this guy. And he was told, that's how you must live. That's a scale. And maybe it's that clear for you, but maybe it's not that clear. Maybe in the back of your mind or deep in your own heart, you're like, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a scale, but I kind of feel like I better do the right things to be accepted, to be a good Christian, to, to be able to go to church, to please God. I need to make sure that I put the good things on the scale so that I measure up to a standard of some sort. And I better take the wrong things off because if I do a wrong thing, then I better do enough right things. And when I do a wrong thing, I better repent properly and I, I, I better pray properly, I better go to church enough, I better give a little more, I better serve a little more because if I don't, then the scales are not gonna be there and if they're a mess, then God's gonna look at me and he's gonna be so disappointed and he's gonna be so upset and he's, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I better, I better do this. Because there's this feeling in us so often, and it comes from pulpits, it comes from messages, it comes from Christians, it comes from churches, and it comes from inside of us as well sometimes. There's this feeling that you're not acceptable to God and to others and to Christianity because you know you and I know me. We know our struggles. I mean, we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. I'm gonna go for a run every day this week. (laughs) we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. so we know there's something in us. We know our thoughts, we know our temptations, and and there's this feeling in us that we don't please God. Or maybe, maybe for you, you're really good at the life of the scale. I mean, you've looked at other people and their scale's like, whoa, look at that. I'm not like that at all. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that. And I do all these things and my scale's at least balanced. Maybe that's where you live and you kind of live with a scale, but the reality is you still know you. I still know me. (laughs) We still know that that's the end, and if that's the way we live, then we better live this perfectly because the minute there's something wrong, it's gonna mess with us. Or maybe you're at the place where there's some things on your scale which you've never told anybody and you've hidden it and you're scared of it and you don't wanna tell anybody and it's heavy. It's so heavy and nothing you've tried. You've tried to, to, to balance it out. You've tried to pay for it. You've tried to do something to show that you're not that anymore. Or maybe it's there and you've tried to change it and you can't. It's there and you're sitting there and so you hide or pretend or you just walk away because the scale is taunting you. I don't know. I know for me, I've lived this. Lots, and I've bounced back and forth with all this. I've, I've kind of called it the curse of the scale, living under the curse of the scale. And I've felt this and I've bumped into it relationally, emotionally, spiritually, in church, in my own heart. I, I've felt many times, i felt things like this, that I better say the right thing, I better do the right thing, I better even feel the right thing. Otherwise, oh my gosh, what's happening? That I I better not feel that. And if I feel that, then I'm not a good Christian. Why do I feel that? I shouldn't feel that. I better not be afraid or anxious of anything because isn't there that scripture that says be anxious for nothing? Aren't Christians anxious for nothing? But I'm anxious, I better not show anybody, but it's there. And I wonder, do I measure up? Do I not please God? Is my faith not working? What's going on? Because I feel certain things, and I've bumped into that. I've thought I better pray enough. I better not struggle as a Christian. I better not struggle as a Christian because my scale is telling me, "Are you struggling again? Don't do that. What's wrong with you?" And I've bumped into it. I better say the right thing, do the right thing, feel the right thing, so that I can be acceptable, and so that I can please God. (laughs) But you know what I've discovered? This is so important. It's it's been so freeing for me. What I've discovered is this: that I can't please God. I can't, I don't, I, I am not good enough to please God. Think about this. That if God really is God, like if He's really God and He's perfect and He's holy and, and who He is sort of comes down the side, that's who He is, then and if I think I can be good enough and do good enough little things that I can pray enough and, and do all the stuff to try and outweigh the perfection and holiness of God, what on earth do I think I can do? <laughs> I am not good enough to please a perfect God. If I think I can do that, you know what I'm doing? I'm elevating the weight of my own self-righteousness and I'm totally diminishing the reality of His holiness and His goodness on one side. And if I elevate my righteousness well enough, make it weigh so much more and diminish His righteousness, then maybe I can, but there's no way in reality because I know me, I know my struggles, I know my mess, I know my mistakes, and I also know that even the good things that I sometimes do are tainted by my own bad motives. Because isn't it true that if I do good to be seen as good, that's a bad motive, that's self-centered and prideful. I know me. And so what I've realized is that in this curse of the scale that tells me I better do enough to please God before I'm a Christian and after I'm a Christian, especially after you're a Christian, because I mean, you're a Christian now, come on. Jesus died for you, come on. Why aren't you doing enough? Because He died for you. If He died for you, can't you do a bit better? Curse of the scale do more, be more, and I'm realizing, (laughs) I can't, I can't, I know me. That verse in Isaiah 64 verse six makes so much sense to me where it says this, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. If you think about the weight of who God really is and the reality of who I really am, even my righteous deeds that I put on the scale to impress, put on the scale to please, is not good enough. To please a righteous God. So if you think about this logically, the scale doesn't even work. I'm not good enough to please a perfect God. And yet somehow the scale appears all over the place within Christianity. And it taunts us and judges us and calls us to do something that we're not even able to do. It's such a curse living by the scale to try to be acceptable to try to feel acceptable and to try to please God, always wondering, am I measuring up now? Am I good enough? Am I measuring up now? And this is exactly why Paul wrote this letter to the people living in Galatia, because they had discovered this God that loves them because he loves them, not because they did anything to deserve it or anything to weigh out the scales. In fact, the scales didn't work in their favor. And he came and said, I love you. I love you and and Jesus died for you and that's what happened. And as that happened, they were so grateful and excited and then the Judaizers came and shoved the scale in their face and said, this is actually how it's supposed to be. And they were confused and trying to figure out all that. And so then they started to go, do we need to do stuff? And the Judaizers came and one of the primary things they said is you better live by the Jewish law. And part of the Jewish law is get circumcised. All these external things, that's one thing. But all these other things, you better do enough to prove that you're worthy of being adopted, that you're worthy of being a Christian, that you're worthy of what he did. Isn't that a message we've heard? It's the exact message that the Judaizers brought and that's why Paul wrote this letter because he said, guys, I want you to know that I understand the curse of the scale, I've lived that. I want you to know I understand the curse of the scale but that's not at all what Christianity is and that's not at all what Jesus did. He says, and we're gonna jump into some of this discussion in Galatians chapter three, verse 10. But man, the whole book is about this. The whole letter, Galatians, you should read it because the whole thing is about This idea, here's what he says in 3 verse 10, Galatians 3 verse 10. But those who depend on the law, depend on their ability to do the right things and put it on the scale, the, the scales of justice, who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse, the curse of the scale. For the scripture says, cursed is everyone who does not obey and observe all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. In other words, what he's saying is imperfect humans can't do this. If you want to do this, be perfect. And put up your hand if you're perfect. No, don't. The reality is we know (laughs) we're not. But he says, if you want to do this, you better be perfect do everything written in the book of the law. So he continues, it is clear then that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. It's clear. And then he says something so important that defines Christianity. He says, for the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. He says that it's not by trusting what you can put on the scale. It's not by trusting your own effort. It's trusting what he has done. It's trusting him. It's trusting God that we are made right with God and that we have life, he says. Verse 12, he continues and explains that faith. He says, this way of faith is very different from the way of law. There's the two rooms. There's the two ways. This way of faith and this way of the law, and it's very different. The way of law says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. Trusting God, faith, is very different from the way of the law. Anything that says you have to do something in order to measure up, you have to put something on the scale in order to be good enough to be acceptable to please God, that's the law. And he says it's very different from trusting God. Paul says the way of faith, the way of trusting God is a completely different room to the way of trusting my self-effort, trusting the scale, trusting me. Then he explains what trusting God looks like, verse 13. But Christ, so huge, but Christ, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced in And by the law, he's rescued us from the curse of the scale. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree, who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed. That's so important. It is not through our ability to do this. It's through Christ Jesus that he blesses that he loves, that he comes, that he does what he does. Because he loves you, it's through Christ Jesus that he blesses us. His acceptance, his blessing, he gives it because of him and because of what Christ did, not because of what we do. He says the curse landed on Christ. Verse 14, through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles that's us, with the same blessing he promised Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Let me explain what he's saying. This is huge, this is beautiful. He's saying this, that when Jesus came to this earth, when he came, you know what he did? When he went to the cross, when he hung on the cross, he says the curse landed on him. In other words, all of our sin passed present and future, all the sin of the world landed on Christ, and Christ got on the scales of justice. And when he took all the, I mean, imagine all the sins in this room alone that we've committed, that we've messed up, all the mistakes, how heavy that would be. Now, everyone in the world, past, present, and future, landed on Christ, and he got on the scales of justice, and it nearly broke the scales, because It was so heavy, but it all landed on him. And then you know what happened: the grace of God, the love of God, the, the, the redemption of God came, and the power of God came in and took this, and Jesus on there, and the love and the holiness of God, and all of a sudden it broke the scale. Whoa, that nearly hit me. <laughs> it broke badly. It was worse than that. <laughs> it broke the scale. That's what Jesus did. And when he took our sin, and hung on the cross. He saw the scale that we were living by and he took it all there and he broke the scale. The scale no longer works. That's what the cross did. That's what Jesus did. The scale doesn't work anymore. And we can try to bring our best efforts and say, oh gosh, I gotta, I gotta try to do really good. I've gotta I'll put it all my best efforts, but, but, but what does it do? It does nothing to the scale. It doesn't work. How do I put something on there? It's not gonna do anything. The scale doesn't work. And I can bring my worst flaws and failures and sins and faults, and I can put it on this side and see how it's gonna affect God's view of me. Look, there it is. It's there. What did the, what did the scale do? Nothing. Because the scale's broken. When Jesus hung on the cross, he broke, he took the curse on himself, and he broke the curse of The scale. Christianity teaches the gospel, the good news teaches that our best intentions can't fix us. I'll try to put it on there. And our worst sins can't undo the grace and the love and the power of what Jesus did. That's what it teaches. He became a curse for us to break the curse of the scale. And he didn't only, and this is huge, this is what Paul was saying, he didn't only forgive us you know, because sometimes Christians go, okay, well, Jesus forgave me. Now I better work hard. No, he forgave us, and then he did more than that. It says, Paul said, that he, through us trusting him, he put his spirit in us. In other words, he came, and he didn't just forgive the past, he changed us. This is what it says. There's this beautiful verse that says, we are new creations. He changed us on the inside at a fundamental level. So we're no longer just defined by our own humanness and our own human imperfection, but suddenly we're defined by him, that Christ is being formed in us, the spirit of God comes into us and makes us new and guides us and helps us live who we now are in a way that's so different. That's what he did. That's what Jesus did on the cross. But so often Christians forget that. And you know what we try to do? We try to rebuild the scale. Okay, all right, I'm a Christian now. Better do this. How do I rebuild this? How do I make sure this works? Because he's done so much for me. I better do so much for him. That's that's exactly what the Galatians were doing. It's exactly what they were doing. And that's why Paul wrote this. Because he said, guys, this is what he did. Why are you returning to where? you? Why are you going back to try and trust in your own self effort? It doesn't work, the scale is broken. Look at what he says, Galatians chapter three, verse one. He was passionate. He said, oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made clear to you. Scales broken. As if you'd seen a picture of his death on the cross. Then he says, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? In other words, did you do enough? Did you do all the right things and then God's Spirit came in you? Because He said, you deserve it, you deserve it, you deserve it. Is that how you got the Holy Spirit? Is that how your life was changed? Is that how you got it? He says, certainly not. Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. You know what this does? It elevates the power of what Jesus did. So many times we diminish the power of what Jesus did. Yes, He's forgiven me, died on the cross. It was beautiful. Now I'm gonna do it. No, no, no. This elevates what Jesus did and said, your effort can't actually do it. That's why I had to break the scale. What I've done can change your life. You, you, you receive the Spirit because you believe the message and heard when, that you heard about Christ. Verse three, how foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Yes, you believed it in the beginning, you started your new lives in the Spirit. Why are you now trying to become perfect? Why are you trying to you know, make yourself better by your own human effort? Because they were trying to build the scale again. Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? Paul's saying in simple terms, please don't try to build the scale again. Jesus broke it. Don't build the scale again. Don't live by the law of self-effort. Rather, be defined by and live by His grace, His forgiving grace, His rescuing grace, His transforming grace, and His empowering grace. Don't build the scale again. It doesn't work. Jesus broke it. This whole book's about this. He talks about it all over. I want to show you a couple more examples. Galatians 2 verse 16 says this. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law, not by our effort, putting enough stuff on the scale and taking the wrong stuff. That's not how we're made right with God. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because our faith is in Christ. Because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. The scale is broken. It doesn't work. Galatians 2.21. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law, that's huge. Those statements. I don't treat the grace of God as meaningless. Building a scale... Relying on my self-effort treats the grace of God as meaningless. For if the law could make us right, if self-effort could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die, Paul says. Changes Christianity completely. Lastly, Galatians 5 verse 2 says this, listen, and Paul's passionate, I, Paul, tell you this, if you are counting on circumcision, one of these external behaviors that I must do to make myself right with God, if you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again, if you're trying to find favor with God, to please God, if you're trying to please God by being circumcised, by putting stuff on the scale, You must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. In other words, you better be perfect. And spoiler, you're not. For if you're trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the law, you, and this is huge language, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's Grace. The scale doesn't work. Self effort doesn't work. Only trusting in the grace, the forgiving grace, the the rescuing grace, the transforming grace, the empowering grace, only trusting in the grace of God actually does anything in us. Not trying to force the right things onto the scale and the wrong things off. Doesn't work. There are these two rooms, one of them has a scale, smack bang in the middle, calling you, taunting you, telling you, you better do enough to please God. The other one, the scale's broken. There's actually a book that I read a while ago that has become an incredibly important book that speaks about this dynamic. It's a book called The Cure, and it's written by John Lynch, Bruce McNichol, and Bill Thrall. And this book describes these two rooms like nothing I've ever read, it is beautiful. And it describes these rooms. It names the rooms. It calls the one room with the scale in it. It doesn't talk about the scale, but it calls the one room with the scale the room of good intentions. And you get there by self-effort and you better work hard to please God. You're striving and working your best to please God in the room of good intentions. And the room of grace is the other one. Room of good intentions and the room of grace. And in the room of grace, you get there by trusting God. God. Not just what Jesus did on the cross, yes, absolutely that. But more than that, trusting what God says about you is true. Trusting that His Spirit actually is in you, that His grace is life-changing and it's in you and you get there by trusting God and you live in the room of grace. And when we trust Jesus, we trust what Christianity tells us, who we are and that the Spirit is in us to help us, lead us, guide us and make us new in the room of grace, the scale is destroyed. But let me say this God is way more powerful than a scale. His grace far outweighs our self effort and real life change comes when His grace is doing what His grace does. This book paints an incredible picture of that, and if you'd like to dive deeper during this series, I would highly encourage you to read the book, The Cure. It's powerful and incredible. So here's my hope in this series as we close. Our hope in the series is to put, shine some light on these two rooms and then ask the question throughout the series, and I wanna leave you with this question. If you're a Christian, here's the question I wanna leave you with. I want you to ask this throughout the series as we wrestle with what it looks like to live in these rooms. <clears throat> the question is this, if you're a Christian, which room am I in? Am I living in the room of grace, or am I living in the room of good intentions? And it's insidious, it's sneaky, I bounce between the rooms sometimes. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I get you again? <laughs> and it's so much more freeing. This one's debilitating sometimes, the room of good intentions, and I'm like, ah, am I doing enough? This one is freeing and I'm the best version of myself when I'm living there. Which room are you in? Which room do you live in? Which room do you portray to others? Which room am I in? If you're not a Christian, here's the question I have for you. Which room has been predominantly presented to me? As I've explored Christianity, which room has been presented to me because it's clear in Scripture that the room of grace is real Christianity? So which room has been presented to me? And then if you're one of those people like my email friend who's walked away from Christianity, let me ask you this. Which room did you actually walk away from? So that's what we're exploring over the next few weeks and I can't wait to do this together. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the room of grace. Thank you for your grace. Father, I've tried and I've failed so many times to impress you, to please you. But God, the fact that you tell me you do please me, you're my son. Changes everything. Father, thank you that in trusting you, I please you. We please you in trusting you. You love us, you're not looking at us disappointed. If the scale rules, sure, there's disappointment, but if the scale's broken, which is what Jesus did when he took the curse on himself, Thank you, Jesus. And I pray, God, that you will allow me, you will allow us to live our lives in the room of grace and portray that to others wherever we go. Because in the room of grace, Christianity is the most beautiful, powerful, life-changing thing we could ever imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.